Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Today, our guest is Mark Roderick. Mark is one of the leading crowdfunding and fintech lawyers in the United States. And that's what we're going to be discussing today is crowdfunding and fintech and how it's impacting the world of real estate investing, leveraging Mark's depth in knowledge and capital raising and securities law. Now, Mark writes a widely read blog, crowdfundingattorney.com, which provides readers with the wealth of legal and practical information for portals, issuers, and investors. Mark's a leader in this space, so I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to a great conversation this morning. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Well, Mark, before we get started, can you just tell the audience members a little bit about yourself, your background, and your expertise in this space? I would be happy to. So I started practicing law in 1840. That's what I always say. (laughs) (laughs) I've been practicing law for a long time, and I have always represented entrepreneurs in all kinds of stuff that entrepreneurs do, and in particular, represented, always represented a lot of real estate entrepreneurs and everything they do. And of course, a lot of what entrepreneurs of all stripes, and especially real estate folks, do is try to raise capital. I always say that if you're talking to a real estate developer and he's not looking for capital, call 911 because he's (laughs) probably not breathing. So I've always represented folks doing that. And so when I saw this Jobs Act, which was actually signed into law seven years ago, time flies, which is the law that allowed crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding. I saw this on the horizon and I said, wow, that is going to be a game changer and disruptive and transformative and super, super exciting. So that's how I got into it. And ever since then, I've been doing nothing but. So what the Jobs Act does basically or did and is doing is it's very simple. It's just the internet. It just for the first time in the history of U.S. securities laws, allows folks to use the internet to raise capital. Believe it or not, you didn't used to be able to do that. And I always like to make that point at the outset because it really helps. I always say, fortunately, there are a lot of technical legal rules because then if there weren't, no one would have to hire me. But the (laughs) big picture, so people understand it, is just the internet. We use the internet for everything in our lives these days, from making travel plans to watching videos to finding a spouse and calling a cab, everything. And why does the internet work so well? It connects directly buyers and sellers and gets rid of middlemen. And that is a long needed change in the capital formation business, which is a multi-trillion dollar a year business. And that's all crowdfunding is. It allows, you're in Houston, let's say you're putting together a multifamily project. It used to be that the only place you could look for capital 
capital is from people you knew. So your parents, maybe you'd start, your uncles, your family, maybe your friends, your lawyer, your lawyers, other clients. So this network of private networks, inefficient. Yeah. Well, this afternoon, if you have that project, you can put it on a website and show it to every investor in the world, not just the United States. So that's what the internet does. And that's why crowdfunding is so successful. Yeah, sure. So in my purview, real estate's been one of these industries that's kind of been slow to catch up to the technology impacts of recent modern times. And there's a lot of things exciting and happening in the space recently, like crowdfunding and being impacted by fintech. So just really quickly, can you kind of describe what fintech is and how it relates to real estate investing? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about fintech, it's a very broad term. And we're talking about any kind of technology that impacts or disrupts the world of finance. So, I mean, back in the 1980s, spreadsheets were fintech, right? <laughs> I mean, think about it. You're too young. But there was a time when spreadsheets didn't exist. I remember one of my first legal jobs back in 1842. <laughs> Seriously, back in big Philadelphia law firm during the 1980s, my job was to prepare financial projections for a real estate deal and no such thing as spreadsheets. So I had a little HP 12C calculator and I was the only one in the law firm, I think, who knew like how to add and subtract because lawyers were <laughs> that big with numbers. So I had to put together all these projections with a calculator. And so every time one thing changed, the beginning rate... <laughs> to add and subtract. So I'm saying that because people think today as spreadsheets is like a given, but that was fintech, super important fintech. Well, fast forward to today, and now we have blockchain technology, which is just kind of a super duper spreadsheet. We have the internet and we use it for all kinds of things. Fintech in the real estate industry today, I mean, the most important thing for sure is that you can use the internet to raise capital. But think of keeping track of your investors and looking at property, using technology, and if blockchain ever takes off and all land records and construction records are all with a click immediately available on every property, those are all things that are kind of gurgling up the fintech ideas within the real estate industry. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when we're talking about real estate technology here and the differences in how we've been able to previously raise capital, like you said, in the past, it was you had to raise private capital from private networks, from friends and family and friends of friends and things like that. And that's kind of how the world of syndication is to date. Now, there are some offerings where you can advertise and you put it out there through social media or advertising companies or whatever. But can you kind of walk us through some of the differences between crowdfunding and syndication? Well, sure. Crowdfunding is just syndication on the internet, and that turns it into syndication on steroids. <laughs> so back in the day, all of our securities laws in this country were created in the 1930s in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And there are a few foundational principles that remain with us to this day. One of them has been there are two kinds of deals, public and private. Public is a Facebook IPO mm -hmm. or a Lyft IPO or an Uber IPO. 
SEO. You can advertise those, but obviously hugely expensive. The other kind of deal is private, and that's the family networks and so forth. And you can't advertise that because that's private. So what the Jobs Act did for the first time is kind of blurred the distinction. So for the first time, your private real estate syndication, if you do it right, you can now publicly advertise and you can publicly advertise it any way you want on Facebook or Twitter or take out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal or most commonly these days have a website. So if you jump through the right hoops, you can change your private real estate syndication into what is virtually a public syndication using the internet. Yeah. So for some obvious benefits, you're able to advertise that to many more people. But what are some other maybe benefits of crowdfunding versus syndication? Well, I guess I would say there are two. And one is obvious and the other is not so obvious. The obvious one is, yeah, you can advertise. You can reach every investor in the entire world, like billions of people rather than your 12 best <laughs> friends. Yeah. But what does the internet do? It connects buyers and sellers, which in this case, the sellers are the real estate syndicators and the buyers are investors. And it eliminates middlemen. Well, who are the middlemen in the capital formation industry? The middlemen is Wall Street and private equity funds. And to some, a lesser extent, you might say family offices and people like that. So in the past, if you need more money than your friends and family can provide, so if you're going to just go buy a duplex and maybe you need $100,000 of equity, you might scrounge that up from friends and family. If you're doing a building, a high-rise multifamily company, complex, you might need 5 million of equity. And unless your family is wealthy, you can't find that money. So you have to go to middlemen. You have to go to people like private equity folks. And those folks drive, they are professional investors. They drive a very, very hard bargain. If you or any of your listeners has ever negotiated with a private equity fund, you know exactly what I mean. The benefit of crowdfunding is the internet. You bypass middlemen. So you can raise money over the heads of those private equity folks. You can go directly to investors. And that way, all the money that the private equity folks would pull out of the deal for themselves, merely by virtue of being middlemen, that's either yours or you share it with your investors or both. So it's better. You get a much better deal dealing with the crowd than you get dealing with professional middlemen. And indeed, I've had a bunch of clients who are very successful and could get all the money they wanted from Wall Street, from private equity, but they've gone around the private equity folks to deal directly with investors very, very successfully. Yeah, sure. So when talking about crowdfunding, it allows the investor to go directly to the capital source that private investor across the globe, wherever they may be, and go directly to them for an offering and whatever they're presenting, right? So that's correct. With that comes quite a bit of a responsibility, I'm sure. So what are some of the hurdles you have to cross to be able to do that? Well, it depends on what kind of crowdfunding. So the Jobs Act created three what I called flavors of crowdfunding, and they're named for the different sections or titles of the Jobs Act. When we pass laws in the United States, they have sections that just happen to be called titles, and that's all the word title means. We have Title II crowdfunding, Title III crowdfunding, Title 
capital for crowdfunding. And very, very briefly, because I'm sure you don't want to get dragged down in the weeds too deeply here. Sure. But Title II crowdfunding is wild, wild west crowdfunding. It is accredited <laughs> investors only. And tell me if you want me to talk about accredited investors, but it's probably a relatively familiar term. Yeah, I think everybody's relatively familiar with Good. that. And so when you're dealing with only accredited investors, anything goes. And the reason, again, is going back to our foundational securities laws from the 1930s. One of the principles has been, still is, will continue to be that rich people can take care of themselves. They don't need the government to protect them because they can hire expensive lawyers and accountants and consultants. So accredited investor is kind of a stand-in for the concept of wealthy person. So this concept in crowdfunding, where Title II crowdfunding, as long as you only take money from accredited investors, you can do anything you want, really what it comes down to. You can't lie. You can't commit fraud. You can't cheat. Sure. But beyond that, you can do anything you want. Title, I'm going to leap over Title III for a second because okay. it's an unusual animal. Title IV crowdfunding, which is often referred to as Regulation A or Regulation A+, they all mean the same thing. That is a kind of crowdfunding that looks an awful lot like a public offering of securities. So to do Title IV, you have to register with the SEC, get the SEC's approval. It's a long process, relatively expensive. But if you do it, now you can sell to both accredited and non-accredited. And you can freely advertise. You're trying to raise a lot of money and you want to include non-accredited investors. That's what you do. And then there's Title III, which is a very new character in the U.S. securities laws, also crowdfunding, but it comes with very stringent limits about how much money you're allowed to raise, about how you're allowed to raise it, about how much money every investor can put into the deal. It's very small. It's sort of Congress doing this on a trial basis to see how many widows and orphans get ripped off by people like you and me. That's the fear. And so far, Title III crowdfunding is really really tiny. In terms of dollars, it's almost not on anybody's radar, but it's out there. It's available. But Title II and Title IV are where the big dollars are, and particularly Title II, the accredited investors only. Okay. So when you're seeing platforms out there like CrowdStreet and these other things, what are those offerings typically under? Those Title II or Title IV? They're almost all under Title II, and some are under Title IV. So what's happened in the market is that accredited investors have really taken to crowdfunding. It's really grown. I actually just did on CrowdStreet for a client of mine. I did the best, although I'm sure it was the best, the largest raise CrowdStreet has ever done. A client of mine just raised $13.6 million just for a common equity you know, real estate raise. And that was through Title II or Title IV? Just Title II. Accredited investors have come into the space. There's a lot more of them yet to come, but those are real dollars. You're raising more than $13 million of equity for a real estate deal. That's serious money. Non-accredited investors in Title IV, the only reason to do Title IV Regulation A is to bring non-accredited investors in. So far, non-accredited investors are not really participating at very high levels, less than we would have anticipated. So some folks, clients of mine, have have started in 
Title II and then said, okay, now we're ready to do Regulation A or Title IV. And they've tried to do it and they found there's just not that much appetite. It's been difficult educating non-accredited investors about the benefits of these investments. And then they've switched back. So they tried Title IV and now they switch back to Title II because they're, as my story about the 13.6 million illustrates, there's money to be raised using Title II and it's faster and cheaper anyway because it's only accredited investors. Okay. So these Title II, Title III, Title IVs are distinctly different laws than you see like 506B, 506C private offerings of securities when you're talking about syndications then. Title II and Rule 506C are the same thing. We always had a Rule 506. That was the old syndication law, which everyone has used since 1982. When it was introduced, Title II of the Jobs Act added Rule 506C, which allows for public advertising and is limited to accredited investors. So as you probably know, Rule 506B, which is the old rule, you can actually include up to 35 non-accredited investors investors in each deal, unlike 506C. But on the other hand, you can't advertise. You're back into the friends and family, whom do you know concept. So that was the JOBS Act, adding Rule 506C, and which has turned out to be quite a revolutionary thing. And not to be confused with the most recent tax changes, the Tax Cuts and JOBS Act, right? That is right. It has nothing to do with the tax bill. Now, we are, as you probably know, there were a couple of things about the tax bill that have intersected with crowdfunding, and in particular, the Opportunity Zone stuff. Represent some folks down in Houston doing Opportunity Zone investing, and a lot of that Opportunity Zone investing is being done via Title II crowdfunding, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So when you're, a, let's say, a real estate investor looking to buy a multifamily apartment of, say, $5 million. You have a couple options. You either can raise money from your friends and family type network or go to an accredited network where you can advertise. So what are some differences one might consider when weighing the odds of doing a syndication through a 506B or C versus doing a crowdfunding opportunity? What are some differences one might be aware of there? Well, the first thing I'd say, of course, is that for most real estate folks, you go where the money is. It is not common to have the luxury to decide, well, you know, those people want to give me 5 million. Those people want to give me 5 million. Typically, the developer wants the money. <laughs> That's the most important thing. And so my advice is always, you decide where you get the money, then let me figure out how to jump through the legal hoops to get it. If you can get the money from people you know, and I'm assuming the same based on the same deal. I mean, as I said before, if the people you know have happen to be private equity guys or other professional investors, you might be able to get a better deal from the crowd. But putting that to the side, the benefit of Rule 506B, that is getting the money just from people that you already know, is that in Rule 506C, I said you can only take checks from accredited investors. The other piece of that is that you have to verify that the investor is accredited. And typically that means hiring a third party a company called Verify Investor. And they do the verification for you, costs something like $40 per investor. If you just get money,
money from people you know, you don't have to verify that they're accredited. If they tell you they're accredited, you can believe it. And one, that saves you the $40 per investor. But I'll say it publicly, people lie. People who are not accredited say they're accredited. So in the Rule 506B world, there's a little bit of a kind of wink, wink. Just tell me you're accredited and I'll be able to take your money. So, I mean, that's not how it's supposed to work, but that is how it works in practice. Now, a more important, perhaps, answer to your question is lots of times people will say, I can raise the $5 million, but not all of my investors are accredited. Some are, but maybe four or five or six are not accredited. In that case, you have no choice. You cannot use Rule 506C because 506C is only accredited. You have to use Rule 506B because 506B allows up to 35 non-accredited. Now, that's not the end of the story. So if you have to use Rule 506B, fine. But because there are non-accredited, going back to that principle of non-wealthy people needing the government's help, that further means that you have to provide more information about your deal than you would have to only accredited investors. And that translates into you have to pay your lawyer more. Not a huge amount, <laughs> yeah, fortunately, right? Yeah, right. So that's how those conversations often go. Where are you going to get your money? Can you get it only from accredited? No, I have some non-accredited. Okay, that means you can't advertise. We have to use 506B and you have to spend a little more money to give them more information. That's usually the analysis. Sure. So going back to our scenario of this investor who needs to raise $5 million for their apartment deal, let's say they've decided they need to reach out to beyond their private network and crowdfund this opportunity. So their options from here are to advertise it on their own website, build a website, put it on social media, or put it on one of these crowdfunding platforms, like you mentioned CrowdStreet or the likes of those. So what are some options there? What are some benefits to keeping it within your own purview or putting it on one of these listing sites like that? Well, it is just a trade-off. Those sites have the two top sites are CrowdStreet and RealCrowd. Um, they both do a terrific job of vetting deals and presenting deals. And they have hundreds of thousands of investors registered at their sites. Okay. That's what you're paying for when you use a RealCrowd or CrowdStreet. So it's just a question of cost. Five million is a big raise. That's not 500,000. It's not such a big raise. Raising $5 million is a pretty big raise. And the likelihood of doing that with your own website is pretty small because there's like a billion websites out there. You've got to have these people coming to your website, right? If you don't know them personally, are they coming to your website? Well, then... yeah. And a lot of those billion websites have like pictures of things that are like more attractive than multifamily apartment buildings. <laughs> to some people anyways, right? Yeah, to some people, to each his own. But but the point is that it's not a build it and they will come kind of situation. Putting up a website and like $2.25 will get you on the New York subway. It's not going to raise $5 million for you. And whereas the real crowd or the 
Wall Street, they've got the investor base built in. So you are trading off. Sure, if you can raise it yourself, it's cheaper. You don't have to pay them. But can you raise that much money yourself? And that's why one of the things that I say over and over and over and over is crowdfunding is a marketing business. I say that like 12 times a day. I should have it on my forehead. Tattooed. <laughs> crowdfunding is a marketing business. Crowdfunding is a marketing business. Got it. <laughs> that is what it is. The technology is not difficult to create. The legal part of it is not difficult because you can just hire someone like me. But the marketing is really, really critical and hard. It's hard to raise money, even with the ability to reach out to every investor in the world. Because what do you know? There's a lot of other multifamily folks reaching out to every investor in the world. So that's what it's about. Marketing. Crowdfunding is a marketing business. Yeah, sure. I think an important thing to note here, Mark, is anytime you're taking money from someone, you are taking on liability. Whether you're raising that in some kind of entity or not, you are in fact taking on liability. You have a responsibility to this investor to properly handle their investment money. So can you talk about the pros and cons there? Yes. And so you're going to be surprised at my answer. Most people are because I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to say there's huge risks and be careful and so forth. Instead, (laughs) I'm going to say the opposite. If you hire a good lawyer, your risks are tiny raising capital from third parties. Now, I'm putting aside the possibility that we're really doing is stealing their money, right? You raise money for the multifamily project and instead you and your girlfriend take a nice trip to the Bahamas. Yeah, you're (laughs) going to be sued. You might go to jail for that. But I'm putting that to the side. If your legal documents are prepared the way they should be, and if you try, there's almost no chance of being sued successfully by an investor. And before you completely breathe a sigh of relief, oh, thank goodness, he just told me I don't have anything to worry about. I didn't exactly say that because I said you have no chance of being successfully sued by an investor. Still have to pay for that defense, right? You got to pay for the defense. Yeah. That's the point. Anybody can sue anybody. And defending lawsuits is freaking expensive, even if the lawsuits are not justified. So there are actually insurance products out there that I highly recommend just to address the question that you are asking. And those insurance products will pay for the defense. I'm sure, you know, subject to some deductibles and so forth. But yeah, the risk is getting sued, not getting sued successfully. Sure. Now, is there any kind of threshold in terms of financial limits where you see crowdfunding being viable versus not viable? Like say if you're trying to raise only $500,000 or only a quarter of a million dollars, is there any kind of threshold, the rule of thumb you've got there? Not really. I mean, there's an upper threshold. So the sites, the good sites, the real crowds and the crowd streets are raising pretty methodically. They put up a good deal. They are now raising two or three million dollars. As I said, my client just raised 13.6, which is just raise the bar. So there are upper limits on the amount you can expect to raise, even for a a high quality project. There's really no lower limit. Now, I guess those sites no 
longer will take a deal of $250,000. It's just not enough money to make it worth their while to go through the exercise. So I suppose in some sense, if you're only raising $250,000, you're probably going to do it by yourself. You can use crowdfunding, you can advertise, but you're probably not going to put it up on a site. So this might not be applicable to that person trying to go out and crowdfund their very first duplex. Not exactly the best vehicle for raising that amount of capital per se. Yeah, that is right. And I should say, which is true of everything, the first deals are the hardest. The top sites won't accept anybody for a first deal. They want to see that you've raised whatever, $50 million, and you've done a bunch of successful deals. So it's obviously, it's a chicken and egg, as in so many, it's like getting your first job, right? Everyone wants to see experience, but how the hell am I supposed to get experience if you want to hire me? That's true with crowdfunding also. So the first ones are the hardest and you're going to figure it out yourself. Yeah. Well, let's kind of fast forward here and look into the future and just look in your crystal ball. You know, we were talking about at one point in time, spreadsheets were fintech. So I'm sure in 50 years now, 50 years from now, we'll be looking back and saying that thing was fintech or that was the way we used to do things. Where do you see things changing in the world of real estate investing? I certainly believe that crowdfunding will become the go-to way to raise money. Just as in 1995, if you had made a travel reservation using Expedia, you were like super cool. How did that work? What was that like? Did you actually get your ticket? That kind of thing. Whereas now, if you told one of your buddies or you and a couple of buddies decided you were going to spend next weekend in Las Vegas, it would go without saying that you were going to make all your plans on Kayak or Expedia or something. So that's what's going to happen with capital formation in the real estate industry. And we're getting there, but it will be not long before. That's just how you raise money, of course. And that's also how you invest. When these great private real estate investments become an important part of everyone's portfolio, yeah, I'm going to go to a site. I think there will be more real crowds and more crowd streets. That's how you're going to invest. So that's, I think, is the biggest change. I do think that if these folks can ever work the kinks out, I do think blockchain will become an important part of the real estate investment infrastructure. No one's going to notice it, just as people didn't notice spreadsheets. But if you think about the friction that currently exists in a typical real estate transaction, with all the pieces of paper and faxes and FedExes and look at the title report and what about yeah, this? I was going to say like title searches, right? Those are complicated, oh, terrible processes in, processes in themselves. It's like a 15th century process still. You <laughs> literally send someone down to the county courthouse and they could look through it. It's crazy. And the technology is going to squeeze out those inefficiencies. It just can't continue to exist. So you think about title, you think about building permits, you think about environmental audits, all that stuff, all that friction that we have today in real estate transactions will get squeezed, I think. When it happens, again, no one's going to really notice except maybe the title company that goes out of business or 
something. But <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. no one's going to notice. It'll just seem natural, but the world will look very different 10 years from now. And I, and I think that's going to be blockchain technology. But people have been making a lot of forecasts about blockchain technology that have not yet come to pass. So I don't know that it'll be that technology, but it'll be some technology. Yeah, sure. So what could that person who's interested in raising capital in the future for real estate investments do to position themselves to kind of ride this technology wave and be positioned when this technology is coming up and being more commonly accepted? How could they position themselves? What could they do now to be able to take advantage of that in the future? Well, that's a great question. And I always say the best thing you can do right now is become a member at CrowdStreet and RealCrowd. Sign up and spend some time, hours, looking around at those sites. See what kind of deals are being offered, how they're structured, and knowing that's market research. That's telling you what investors want, right? So one kind of marketing is I build a widget and then I figure out how to sell it to people. The other kind of marketing is I figure out what kind of widget people want to buy first. And then you go build it, right? <laughs> and then you build it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's true in every industry, the law industry, the real estate industry. So figure out, and the genius is among your audience, and I'm certainly not one, figure out what kind of real estate project is going to be appropriate for and attractive to retail American investors. And it's going to be who can access it online and what that product looks like. That's the product that you want to be investing in over the next five years, I think. Yeah, sure. Mark, it's always interesting to kind of think about how technology will impact real estate going forward and trying to figure out what's the next biggest thing. I'm not one of these very creative guys. I have a hard time just kind of grasping those kinds of concepts. So it's always interesting to hear somebody like yourself who's very involved in the space and hear their thoughts, ask you these off the wall questions like, where are we going to be in 50 years? So, you know, it's really valuable information to kind of hear your insight there. Thank you. I mean, I'm involved in the industry, but I would certainly wouldn't call myself a visionary. My one great insight because I've, as I said, had represented so many people raising money was when I saw, hey, we're going to be able to use the internet to do this. I immediately said, wow, that is going to be so powerful. But as to what the next big things are, the next big technological revolutions, I will say that there's a tremendous amount of time and energy being spent today creating secondary exchanges. So you invest in a private real estate project and then have a way to liquidate your interest. And that is all being based on the excitement around blockchain, that if we can put real estate LLC interests in the form of a token on a blockchain, that it will make it much more freely tradable. I'm a little bit skeptical about that, as I've written a bunch of times on my blog. But I will tell you that in terms of trends, this is something a lot of people are spending time and money on so that maybe in the future, there will be an active secondary market for real estate investments. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting stuff, Mark, and I'm sure that our audience members feel the same. Now, you mentioned your blog. I know that's a great place to go and kind of read about some of this stuff. Tell us a little about what you're writing there, where you can find it, and just where the audience members can learn more about you and what you offer. Well, the URL is crowdfund, spelled the way it sounds, and then attny.com, the abbreviation for attorneys. So crowdfundattny.com. Or I write so much and I do a lot of speaking 
speaking and so forth. So if you just Google Mark Roderick crowdfunding, you will not be able to avoid finding that blog. But it includes, oh my gosh, I will promise you there's no marketing material. There's nothing about Mark Roderick. It's all about, I have diagrams and stuff like that, visuals, all the different kinds of crowdfunding, all the rules and what the Investment Company Act is about and how it affects crowdfunding and just a ton of resources looking at the industry from all different angles. So I don't encourage anyone to try to read all of that. You would definitely fall asleep long before you got through a tenth of it. But there's really, there's a ton of stuff there. Yeah, I was just surfing around on it this morning. Uh, Tons of great articles there, lots of resources, and like you said, just pure content and actionable articles there. So highly recommend the audience members who are interested in this to go over and check that out. That's crowdfundattny.com. Mark, as we're wrapping up here, any kind of parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with the audience members? Any last words? It's just the internet. That's what it is. And if you think about it that way, it all makes sense. It all becomes simple. And I think it also is that that path towards seeing how the future is going to play out. Look how the internet operates in other industries, how it starts, how it continues and finally absorbs the entire industry. That's all crowdfunding is. Internet in the capital formation industry. Think about that. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be more creative than I am about thinking of what kind of opportunities that presents to them. Yeah, sure. Well, hey, Mark, it's been a lot of fun having you on, kind of talking about crowdfunding and how it's going to impact real estate investing going forward. Look forward to having you back on, maybe say in 2040 after you've been practicing law for over 200 years <laughs> yeah. and see what projections have come true and forecast another 50 years ahead. So, hey, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Take care. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Mark Roderick. Hey, I hope you're getting value from this show. I try to bring on different and unique guests every week to provide different perspectives and provide value to you as the listener because I know you're here to learn and educate yourself on different matters. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation today with Mark. He's got some really unique and exciting perspectives on how technology is going to be changing the world of real estate investing. I think it's always good to keep up with those types of trends. Well, hey, if you have any questions about anything mentioned on the show today, you can check the show notes for all those resources we mentioned. And as always, the best place to learn more about what I'm doing, reach out to me personally and connect is at www.jacobairs.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.